I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Well, it's good to be back after taking a break over the summer for a number of projects and traveling, but I am glad to be starting a new year of this podcast and on a new platform. Make sure that you're subscribed to By the Waters of Babylon. We're on Anchor FM now. And happy to be there and uh, encourage you to subscribe and leave us a rating on popular services like Apple Podcasts, and that helps others to find the podcast. I want to begin this new year of the podcast by reminding you of the core emphasis of the various episodes of the podcast. I named the podcast By the Waters of Babylon directly from Psalm 137 as a reminder that we as believers in Jesus Christ are living as exiles in this world. We are, according to Ephesians 2.11, citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, and as such, we are set apart from the unbelieving people of this world in which we live. We are not of this world, just like Jesus is not of the world. Jesus said that this world hates him because he testifies about it that its works are evil. Galatians 1.4 calls this world the present evil age. 2 Corinthians 4.4 identifies the God of this world as one who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This one who Ephesians 2.2 calls the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is why Peter describes our current situation as believers as the time of your exile. And he specifically calls us sojourners and exiles. John commands us as Christians do not love the world or the things that are in the world. And Paul insists that Christians do not be conformed to this world. This recognition should engender within us a healthy distrust in the beliefs and values and cultural pursuits of the unbelieving world around us. Since culture, that is a system of behavior that characterizes a particular society, since culture necessarily results from dominant worldview, beliefs, values of that society, it should come as no surprise that much of the cultural activity of a thoroughly pagan society would be expressions of those sinful values. Christians in the first through third centuries couldn't help but recognize this. They couldn't help but recognize their status as exiles because they were increasingly persecuted for their faith. But with the legalization of Christianity in 313 and the declaration of Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire in 392, Christians essentially were lulled into passivity. The church and state eventually united And church leaders literally wanted to turn the empire into a theocracy like Israel. And this lulled Christians into forgetting that we are exiles in a pagan world. God never intended for this sort of union between church and state, this theocratic situation in the present age. Many good things came as a result of it. Much of the cultural production that came out of the Middle Ages and Renaissance, the art and literature and music, contained values and morals that are noble and good. But that kind of union of church and state within the broader culture created a lot of 
nominal Christianity and lulled true Christians into forgetting that they were exiles. The reformers in the Protestant Reformation, especially Luther and Calvin, argued against the church-state union by articulating a two-kingdom theology, but they were themselves unable to completely disentangle themselves from the socio-political ties during their lives. The Church of England was the same thing. Baptists in England and a few groups prior to Baptists attempted to recover a separation between church and state, and that emphasis of separation of church and state influenced the founding of the United States of America as well. But nevertheless, the effects of Christendom can still be observed today. But nevertheless, the effects of the union of church and state during the Middle Ages can still be observed today for good and for ill. How many Christians today consider themselves sojourners and exiles? How many Christians recognize that their citizenship is in another kingdom and that they are currently living in the world that is hostile to them and their way of life? Well, one of my goals of this podcast is to help to remind us of this, help us to remind how we can and should live wholly separated lives in the midst of a pagan world. The problem is we don't always recognize the paganism around us. So I'd like to spend the next several episodes of this podcast focusing on the deeply rooted secular religious values that are all around us that in some ways we might not even recognize, but that we need to be vigilant to avoid lest we integrate them into Christianity and weaken our beliefs and our practice. Let me just give you one example of this with a dominant value that is all around us that we often fail to recognize as actually an expression of the paganism that is rooted in our culture. You don't have to go far in our society today to witness claims that having the newest, latest product is the best. People would would not think of buying something old or stale or so yesterday. This applies to commercial products that are marketed by clever advertisers, but unfortunately, it also applies often to church ministry, to theology, and worship. Old is bad and new is good. I can't tell how many times I've heard for example, otherwise very conservative people say, we just need some fresh new methods in our churches, or we just need some fresh new music in our worship. Why is it that we automatically assume new is better? Well, C.S. Lewis addressed this very question in a work that he wrote in 1954 on the occasion of his appointment to the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University. C.S. Lewis said this, How has it come about that we use the highly emotive word stagnation with all its malodorous and malarial overtones for what other ages would have called permanence? Why does the word at once suggest to us clumsiness, inefficiency, and barbarity? When our ancestors talked of the primitive church and the primitive purity of our constitution, they meant nothing of that sort. Why does latest in advertisements, he says, mean best? Well, let us admit that these semantic developments owe something to the 19th century belief 
in spontaneous progress, which itself owes something either to Darwin's theorem of biological evolution or to that myth of universal evolutionism, which is really so different from it and earlier. But I submit, says Lewis, that what has imposed this climate of opinion so firmly on the human mind is a new archetypal image. It is the image of old machines being superseded by new and better ones. For in the world of machines, the new most often really is better, and the primitive really is the clumsy. And this image, potent in all our minds, reigns almost without rival in the minds of the uneducated. For to them, after their marriage and births of their children, the very milestones of life are technical advances. From the old push bike to the motorbike and thence to the little car, from gramophone to radio and from radio to television, from the range to the stove, these are the very stages of their pilgrimage. But whether from this cause or from some other, assuredly that approach to life which has left these footprints on our language is the thing that separates us most sharply from our ancestors and whose absence would strike us as most alien if we could return to their world. Conversely, our assumption that everything is provisional and soon to be superseded, that the attainment of goods we have never yet had, rather than the defense and conservation of those we have already, is the cardinal business of life, would most shock and bewilder them if they could visit ours. Lewis makes several important observations here. First, that what happened with the rise of the machines, as he calls it, created a shift in civilization like no other shift that came before, is an important observation. I would add that the Enlightenment created the philosophical conditions necessary for this shift to occur, that philosophical change being of quite a seismic nature itself. This reminds me of Quentin Faulkner's claim that there is more difference between Christianity and post-Enlightened secularism than there was between Christianity and pre-Enlightenment paganism. At least paganism believed in the transcendent and supernatural. The point is, this is no change to gloss over. But the second point Lewis makes is the effect of Darwinian evolution upon the philosophical discourse. With evolution, less always progresses to better. Through natural selection, only what is good lasts, and by necessity, the good is the new. Progressiveness, in contrast to conservatism, is at its core Darwinian. The third important observation Lewis makes is what technological advancement has done to the collective psyche of society, wherein in times past, permanence, stability, and classic were virtues, they have been replaced by a desire for new, fresh, and contemporary. I think Lewis is right that this shift comes because of the rise of technology. Anyone would admit that when it comes to machines, new is, in fact, always better. Machines break down, they rust, they wear. Advancements in technology do always lead to better machines. Who wants to buy the old iPhone when you can get the new one? On this point, no one, not Lewis nor I, is claiming that technological advancement is necessarily a bad thing. We all enjoy the benefits of medical breakthroughs, and I'm a huge techie with the best of them. But what we must be careful to note is 
what this constant advancement does to our perception of what is best in terms of truth, goodness, and beauty. These are transcendent, universal, absolute principles rooted in the nature and character of God, and they are very old. They are permanent. They are eternal. Scripturally, permanence, stability, and tradition are almost always praised as superior to new, creative, and unique. The only new that is praised as good is that which transforms a sinner and gives him newness of life. But even there, that sinner is being redeemed to very old, permanent realities. The fact of the matter is that the Christian faith is very old. And that is what the church has been called to preserve and transmit to future generations. We need to be careful not to get caught up in the cultural frenzy of newness in our Christian ministry. Well, in a moment, I want to just introduce a couple more key ideologies that are around us in the paganism of our current culture, ideas that I want to develop in future episodes. But first, I want to recommend a book that ties in to what we just talked about. T. David Gordon wrote the book, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns, How Pop Culture Rewrote the Hymnal, published in 2010 by PNR Publishing. I couldn't agree more with Gordon's approach, underlying assumptions, and conclusions in this book tied directly to what we just discussed. Gordon argues that pop culture has so changed the fabric of society today as to create an environment in which good music is almost impossible to appreciate. His historical, cultural, and musical analyses are spot on, in my opinion. One of the best points Gordon makes is something that we just discussed, and that is that most people today, even most Christians, are driven by a desire to be contemporary. Contemporaneity has become itself a virtue for most people, even Christians. It makes anything traditional or historic unattractive or even detestable. But Gordon argues that this quote-unquote virtue runs contrary to biblical values. Again, I think his argument here is important because many Christians insist that we have to have fresh-sounding songs or settings of old hymns. But what they are being driven by is an underlying assumption that contemporaneity is a virtue in itself. I encourage you to check this book out, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns by T. David Gordon. So I'd like to highlight now a few other aspects of what I would call a secular theology that is dominant in our culture today that sometimes we don't even realize, though we may acknowledge it intellectually, we might not always recognize the effects. These are a few of the shifts and changes that have occurred in philosophy and culture around us that I just want to highlight today, but develop further in episodes to come. As culture and worldview shifted and changed in the wake of the Enlightenment, really a new theology emerged, a theology we sometimes call deism. This theology first affirmed the existence of a creator God, but one who had not revealed himself to humanity nor has any contact with them now. Many people in our present culture, especially in the United States of America, are probably functional deists. 
this theology of deism, really a new religion, a drastically secularized portrait of the relationship between God and man, began in the early years of the United States of America. Most of the founding fathers were deists. While early Enlightenment philosophers were deists, affirming the existence but impersonality of God, by the 19th century, the dominant worldview and religion shifted to pure materialism. The rational basis for explaining the world in purely natural terms without the need to acknowledge a creator was Charles Darwin's book in 1859, The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Man was now understood to be a machine, his actions the product of chemical reactions with no inherent morality or value at all. This naturalist evolutionary explanation also spread to other philosophical disciplines, such as anthropology and its insistence upon the value-free nature of culture. C.S. Lewis, a moment ago, identified the Darwinian underlying philosophy between even the cultural assumption that new is always better. So there is no question that Darwinian theology has impacted our culture, but sometimes we don't always recognize where that has taken place. What these developments created is essentially a new religion, a secular religion dominated by the central doctrine of pluralism, which D.A. Carson describes this way, any notion that a particular ideological or religious claim is intrinsically superior to another is necessarily wrong. The only absolute creed, Carson says, is the creed of pluralism. No religion has the right to pronounce itself right or true and others false, or even, in the majority view, relatively inferior. And of course, we're seeing that very dominantly today. A final essential component of this secular religion that I want to develop in a future episode is pragmatism. Pragmatism was the first distinctly American school of philosophy formulated by Charles Sanders Peirce, William James, and John Dewey. Peirce succinctly articulated the core of pragmatism when he said, Consider the practical effects of the objects of your conception. Then your conception of those effects is the whole of your conception of the object. These philosophers wanted to bring the successes of scientific problem-solving to other realms of life. And so what answers practical needs becomes the most important. William James defined truth on the basis of what has, quote, cash value in experiential terms. He argued, quote, true ideas are those that we can assimilate, validate, corroborate, and verify. False ideas are those that we cannot. John Dewey, whose influence in America spans from education to politics and art, believed that practical answers to real problems was more important than theoretical contemplation. Experience is ultimate, he said, for only through testing what works can we come to know what is true. Since only the natural world exists in their thinking, and therefore there are no transcendent universal moral principles, the ends justifies the means in the secular religion. 
All of these are things that Christians need to be carefully aware of and vigilant toward avoiding as we seek to live as exiles in this present evil age. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture. Thank you.